Hiya, Duncan Green here with quite a long roundup of a few posts because I came back from holiday last week uh, and started midweek. So I've, I've got last week's and this week's posts, so seven or eight in all. So uh, buckle up, this might take a bit longer than the usual 16, 17 minutes. So first post was a post-Glasgow uh, post um, about the, uh, the big climate summit there by Alex Evans, who's one of the most thoughtful, I think, campaigners on, uh, on, on these kind of issues in the UK. He wrote a great book called The Myth Gap. And after the, uh, after the summit, he wrote a piece on his Larger Us blog. He set up this organisation called Larger Us. Um, looking at the future of the climate movement. And uh, he's saying, for some leading voices on climate activism, like Bill McKibben or George Monbiot, the answer seems to be more of the same, more shouting, more civil dis disobedience, more marches in the streets. Perhaps they're right. But it's also worth asking, might we need a different kind of climate movement at this point? Because, and he sort of sums up where he thinks the climate change movement has got to. Sunrise in the States and Extinction Rebellion in the UK have achieved a lot. Um, they've got, you know, massive movements in, in terms of um, Joe Biden's infrastructure and climate bill in the UK, shifting the terms of debate, um, serious legislation on net zero and so on. But now they're hitting diminishing returns. Fewer people are turning up on the demos, less media coverage. They've kind of run out of ideas. Um, and further progress, Alex argues, it depends on broadening the coalition. The battle against climate can't be won just by firing up the progressive activists that form Sunrise and Exile's base. So where does that take us? And he's got 10 thoughts, so that's quite a lot. I'll rattle through them. First, don't alienate people we need to win over. Disruptive action can create political space for change, but use it against the right people, financial institutions, private jets, City of London. Don't glue yourself to roads where um, ordinary people are trying to drive and get their uh, relatives to hospital and that kind of thing as has happened recently in the UK. So think about who you're alienating. To appeal to a broad spectrum, you have to be a broad spectrum. Climate activism has to be a bit less white, less middle class, less urban. Fewer spokespeople called peers, uh, I would say. Third, don't set purity tests as a condition of entry. And he talks about one placard which said, shut up about climate change if you eat meat. These kind of purity tests that set out to delineate an enlightened in-group from a not good enough out-group are exactly the kind of thing we don't need. Number four, offer more ways of being involved. Getting arrested is fine if you're young, single uh, or old and you know, uh, your kids have left home. If you've got a family or if you're um, in danger of losing your job or you're uh, from a people of colour community used to getting beaten up by the police, these are not great tactics, so you need to offer a range of tactics, ways of getting involved. Start with personal action. Don't Climate activists can sometimes be dismissive of the significance of personal actions. And Alex says, no, because they build a sense of agency and they show the politicians that we mean it. You know, for me, for example, the whole um, fair trade movement was instrumental in getting politicians on board for bigger picture stuff on the World, on the world Trade Organization and trade justice and that kind of thing. Build small groups, those are the things that stick around, build sort of deep bonds of trust and work over years. Have conversations. It's conversations, not facts, data or pie charts that change people's minds. And there's lots of data on that. Um, uh, so you've got to get into these widespread conversations with people rather than dismissing them. Elections, elections, elections. As our focus shifts from agenda setting to how to hold governments to the task of a decades long transition, 
Protests will only get us so far. What we really need is power to get governments to do what we want, and that means tipping the balance of elections. So you have to sh show politicians that a critical mass of us across the political spectrum want radical action on climate, really want it, as opposed to the thin yes of people merely expressing a view when asked in opinion polls. But also, I mean, you can get politicians to sign pledges, but he thinks you need a get out the vote operation so that, uh, that you can actually say to the politicians, look, we are going to get out the vote for this next election, so you better listen to what we say. Nine, don't get boxed in on the left. We need to bring right-wing voters into our movement and pitch our message to right-of-centre as well as left-of-centre parties. And finally, let's hear it for entryism. Mischievous strategists must surely be asking themselves what might unfold if this started happening to parties other than Labour. The Conservatives have well under 200,000 members at this point. That's a fifth as many people as belong to the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. So the question isn't so much why don't climate activists take it over. It's more like why haven't they done so already? So I thought that was really interesting. And then I, I sort of uh, counterposed that with a, a blog from George Monbiot saying the exact opposite. That it's time to get more radical and you know, real uh, and get out on the streets. And it's also some very interesting input from Katie Chakraborty from Oxfam as well. about uh, So there's a big debate going on there and it's just nice to reflect it. Second post of the week was very much from the aid side of things, getting into the politics of why some governance programmes work. Laura-Hélène Laura Piran and Sam Waldock reflect on some of the unexpected lessons of 20 years of UK-funded governance programmes in Nigeria, and that's nearly 300 million quid. So that's a big investment, and they've, they've been doing a big sort of backwards-looking piece on those 20 years um, and what they've achieved. Um, and some of their findings about how change happens and the role the UK played. First, Nigerian states with the least politi political competition saw the most sustained governance reforms. This seems counterintuitive. Why should governance improve when political leaders face less competition? Shouldn't elections, which take place regularly in Nigeria, create strong incentives to improve how states are governed? The research found that two factors are at play. Governors who are the most powerful actors in states operate within competitive clientelist, clientelist networks. They need to manage their allies, opponents and social base to stay in power. When governors were sec politically secure, as in Jigawa, Yobe and Kaduna since 2015, they had more political space to take risks and make bigger changes. Less political competition also meant the reforms could be pursued over a longer time frame over 20 years in Jigawa. So basically, if the governor is untouchable, they can do stuff. And that includes doing governance reforms. So it's kind of interesting that where there's less political competition, um, there's actually more chance of reform. Our second finding, UK programmes contribute to governance reforms when they understand and act on leaders' political base for reform. That is, when they think and work politically. So that was music to my ears because I've been writing about thinking and working politically for ages. And sure enough, they say to seasoned governance types, this isn't surprising. But we found a dizzying array of mechanisms through which political leaders found support for change, shedding new light on how change happens and how these processes can be supported by donors. Finally, we found most progress on governance where there were elements of empowerment and accountability. And their research revealed a sweet spot 
and what that means is uh, yeah, funding civil society organizations trying to get support for that interaction between citizens and states. And their research found a sweet spot where aid really could tip the balance. Where a government really wanted to transform the civil service anyway, they didn't need significant UK assistance. Where there was absolutely no political interest at all in reform, nothing changed, despite civil society engagement and UK support. The, speed, the sweet spot is where reforms could go either way, and there the UK support probably tipped the balance. The main feature of three generations of UK programmes is that they increasingly focused on constructive engagement between state and non-state actors. They facilitated new spaces for civil society and communities to get involved and coalitions to be formed with media, bureaucrats and politicians. So they leave two headline messages for uh, aid donors principally um, on development programmes. One, give programmes the capacity and space to think and work politically. Two, never focus solely on reform internal to government, government systems without considering how participation, transparency and accountability will, will also be promoted. For us, this was often the difference between lasting success and failure. Very nice. Right, so that was the end of last week. And now this week we get into links I liked. Um, I put up a couple of my favourite posters from Glasgow. Um, there's one, that I, a quote from the great uh, Brazilian uh, environmentalist, Chico Mendes. Environmentalism without class struggle is just gardening, which I just think is great. And uh, there was a more sort of a parochial one. Keep Glasgow cold, wet and grey. And I thought both of those were just brilliant and, and you know, got massive pickup on Twitter. Um, next post um, was a, a, a UK report by uh, the IPPR think tank and the Runnymede Trust. Making change what works, lessons from four successful movements. And they looked at LGBTQ plus rights, race equality, climate action and health inequality which they regard as four movements which have really you know, um, had some impact in recent years. And their findings uh, sort of add to and also echo a lot of the stuff that people talk about in the aid bubble as well. So inside one, evidence alone cannot change the world. Successful movements seek to close what we call the salience deficit, where the public or power holders do not think the issue is important or see it through a different frame. And the power deficit where the people wanting change are not in positions of power or have limited influence on those who are. To do this, movements build a campaigning infrastructure to tell compelling stories that speak to people's values and identities in order to shift the debate and seek to capture existing sources of power like political parties or the media or build alternatives such as new coalitions or institutions. Inside two, movements need a well-developed ecosystem of influence. They, they seek to build breadth, so diversity. You need lots of different organisations with different angles and different specialities working on the same topic or similar topic. Depth of capability. So you need people to you know, uh, uh, be able to raise money, uh, do technical work, do campaigning. And this often requires philanthropists to crowd in funding. And then interconnection. The ecosystem's got to be well connected, tight, tight links between them. Um, whether through convening organisations or trust and shared language. Inside three, successful movements are really organic. They require active cultivation. Uh, I'm not sure about that metaphor. I think you can cultivate organic gardens, but uh, anyway. Um, 
<clears throat> I guess what they mean is they don't just happen. They need somebody to cultivate them. And, and cultivation in this sense includes things like convening these groups of people to talk to each other and build trust, uh, resourcing. These things need money, collective care, so that you cushion perceived failures, um, yeah, mediate tensions, which always crop up in, within movements, and shared learning. So these, these are the kind of the people who may not be on the front page, but they're, they're working away creating an ecosystem that supports the movement. Insight four, successful movements prepare for and then harness external events. Hello, yes, critical junctures, shocks. I've been banging on about this for years, so I'm not gonna repeat that, but basically you, you have to make the most of these moments of change, these moments of upheaval, and that's, a, that's the big test of any movement, I think. Next post was from the World Bank, actually. And the World Bank is just on a monster number crunch on the aid stats, uh, looking not just at official aid from governments, but at certain kinds of private finance as well, going to developing countries. Um, and the main findings were fairly dull, so I kind of spiced them up with, uh, with my own commentary. So finding one, financial flows have grown steadily over the last decade, largely thanks to private sector finance, to which my comment is, well, it's amazing that official aid grew at all, given the austerity going on in the rich countries, and it may not continue. But what's, um, and also we don't know what's happened to private flows under COVID, because the stats they crunched ended at the end of 2019. Second point, among public lenders, BRICS countries, so that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and I think that's it, South Africa, sorry, countries provided significant volumes of loan financing. We don't really talk about BRICS anymore. We basically talk about China because all the others have gone into um, meltdown. Um, and BRICS mainly prefer loans uh, to grants. I think that much we know. Next finding, middle income countries received almost half of total ODA commitments and 85% of other official flows. So, so much for poverty focus. Most of the money still goes to the middle income countries for political reasons, not to the poorest countries as donors have promised for decades. Next finding, the volume of funding which donors have not identified as allocated to specific recipient countries almost quadrupled over the past two decades and is now about a fifth of the total. So this is a shift towards global public goods, potentially a good thing. Global public goods, which uh, I imagine is only going to increase given the, uh, the promises on climate uh, 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 response and COVID um, and future pandemics. So um, aid donors are moving towards thinking globally rather than country by country, probably necessary. Um, final points, aid is getting increasingly fragmented but not primarily because of new donor countries like Turkey or the Saudis. The real um, drive for fragmentation is the proliferation of new agencies within the existing donors. They keep setting up new, new bodies, new, new institutions to, to, give it, to hand out aid uh, and is causing massive fragmentation. That may be a bad thing. It may be actually not a bad thing. It depends how they do it. I suspect it's a bad thing. And typical aid grant, partly because of that, typical aid grants have halved since 2020. More paperwork, more hassle to get uh, the same money. So a useful bit of crunching from the from the World Bank now. And then um, next to this week was somebody sent me an Oxfam uh, online resource, which no one had told me about before. I think it went up fairly recently, called How Do You Measure the Impact of Influencing? So it's about yeah, influencing this thing I talk about a lot, about you know campaigning, lobbying, advocacy, 
stuff inside of stuff behind closed doors, outside of stuff on the streets. How do you know if you've actually had any impact? It's really difficult. It's much easier to measure the impact of handing out bed nets and you know uh, malaria rates drop or you hand out seeds and you can see that yields uh, uh, increase. How, how do you prove that you've changed the public mind, the, you know, the political agenda, these kind of things? And this is a really useful toolkit uh, for helping people do that. As more and more money is going into influencing, so not surprisingly, the funders are saying, did you achieve anything? Um, so the design of this thing is basically too funky for me. It's all online. You can't print it out uh, and read it, which is what I like to do. I kill a lot of trees on, during an average week. Um, it's got drop down menus that allow you to choose. So you can either read the whole thing from beginning to end. You can look for particular tools, you know, and whether you're talking about planning, monitoring, evaluation or learning. Um, or you can select a journey from things uh, yeah, where you do a, a what do you need for a particular thing like building a theory of change or influencing the outcomes of a program. Um, but the problem is I can't really take you much further than that because it's online and graphics based. So I can't really talk you through it on a podcast. It is, however, really good. And the thing I like is it, it's not just about monitoring evaluation. and uh, It's about learning and asking the right questions. So it will actually make, I think, people's influencing work better because of if they read it. So do uh, if you're involved in this umbrella of influencing advocacy campaigns, etc., take a look. Final post of the week, uh, uh, 30 years and counting, 16 days of activism against gender-based violence in our COVID-19 world. And this was a repost uh, by um, of so of something written by Amina Hersey, Charlotte Becker and Florence Agola, uh, uh, who work for Oxfam. Um, and, it's on the, and it was first published on the Oxfam International blog to start uh, 16 days of activism on gender-based violence, which takes place at this time of year every year. Women, girls, trans and non-binary people have always faced the horrific and sometimes lethal consequences of gender-based violence in our societies, throughout history, in all countries and in all walks of life. Even before the pandemic, in 2018 alone, 245 million women and girls were subjected to sexual and or physical violence by an intimate partner. That is more than all the people who contracted COVID in the last 12 months. But lockdowns have made gender-based violence spiral. Millions of people became trapped at home with their abusers in situations of heightened economic and emotional tension. Even when more people moved into online spaces, the increased violence, bullying and harassment followed them there. At the onset of the pandemic, activists and frontline, frontline workers sounded the alarm about the scale of the issue. Domestic and gender-based violence helplines recorded an increase in the number of calls from survivors seeking help. In 10 countries, the surge in those calls was from, went from 25 to 111%. However, governments have not done enough to tackle GBV, gender-based violence. Women's rights organisations have had their budgets cut. The collection of GBV data, vital information, is wo woefully inadequate. This year marks the 30-year anniversary of 16 days of activism against GBV since activists started it at the inaugural Center for Women's Global, Global Leadership in 1991. This annual commemoration kicks off every 20, November the 25th to December the 10th to create awareness about GBV worldwide. This year, donors, governments and individuals must reflect on the impact that the pandemic has had on GBV and commit to real action. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown that governments can take extraordinary measures to protect their citizens 
respond to deadly crises when spurred to action. We need to see more of this kind of effort, of effort to address GBV in their COVID-19 response and recovery plans. We need to be deliberate about making the world safer for women, girls and LGBTQI plus people. Let's act now. Then he goes on to respond to five questions that they've had about the recent report. And that's the start of the 16 days. I'm going to post two or three more posts uh, related to the aspects of GBV over the next couple of weeks. So you'll hear about it when you come back next week. Until then, have a great weekend. Talk soon. Bye. Mm-hmm.